Hello, everyone. I wanted to do a quick shout out that if you are a new listener or maybe you've been checking out a few of the episodes that we've had so far this year, I just made sure to go through and add links to the free Occupational Science 101 guide. So it's very likely that even after listening to a few of these episodes, or if this is the first one you've checked out and you're like, man, what the heck is occupational science? I've never heard of that before. I have some news. You're not alone. Occupational science, it is largely published about in academic journals, which have a hard time making their way, those insights, to those of us that are ordinary occupational beings at the ground floor. So that's part of why I put together a guide that can orient a little bit to some of the main terminology, give you some names of occupational scientists to look into, different lists of the textbooks. So if you're wanting a little bit more of a big picture orientation to what occupational science is as part of joining in these dialogues and discussions, I just wanted to let you know that I went ahead and linked to that in each of the show notes of the episodes we've recorded so far. And I'm a bit more professional. I've gotten a nice disclaimer out there, both myself and any of the guests I have. We're always just representing our perspectives at this point in time. None of this is in an official affiliation with any of our employers or any of the OT associations. This is really a space for informal dialogue and figuring out how to support each other. And I'm really here to support you too on your occupational science literacy journey and different ways that I hope that this can support you, this lens and perspective can support you in your growth as an occupational being and perhaps as an occupational therapy practitioner just as much as it has me. So I just want to make sure that you know about that resource. If you go into the show notes here, you can get that free engaging occupational science guide delivered right to your email inbox. And we also have a Facebook group. I'm still learning how to set that up, but I I share occupational science relevant conversations and pieces. That's the container right now where you can find others to engage in this dialogue and discussion over time. So feel free to check out those links. I'm so excited to share this episode with you today. Hello, everybody. I wanted to do a little bit more of a personal check-in today with this episode release and just update you guys that have been listening so far and where this process is going and to give some context on this next episode. So this has been kind of part of my imperfect action about putting some of this content out there and just seeing what happens. I thought I would tell you a little bit about some of my goals that are emerging with this project and kind of some of the things that I've been going through in the field and responding to some of the challenges of COVID and just um, navigating my own relationship to being at risk for burnout in the OT profession. And I'm pretty certain that I'm not alone there. And I'll be honest, I've seen, I think that there's one approach that I see to burnout, which I think is important of getting to a point of being able to pull your energy out of where it may be over invested and where you may not have occupational balance in your own life. So one of the classic framings within occupational science and occupational therapy that has evolved a bit with occupational science, but going and starting with that basic 
of having a balance between rest, productivity, and leisure in a Western sense, that can be a healthy guidepost, right? So I think that it can be meaningful to start pulling your energy out of some place where it's out of balance so that you have resources to allocate in these other containers. And those can be rest, productivity, leisure, or if you listen to last week's podcast, it can also be the different occupational categories that are very customized to you as an occupational being and where you want to delegate your energy. But one of the things that I feel that occupational science has helped me with, as well as just like reading through some of the literature on burnout in general, and I think some of this is the premise of occupational therapy. Sometimes it's not that we necessarily need to be doing things less to just restore more like rest to the system and pull things out. Sometimes we have to actually look at doing things differently. Doing things differently where there's more of a sense of being connected to purposeful and meaningful activity in your life. Some of these symptoms of burnout can be a consequence of working in systems in which you feel stuck, stagnant, systematically disempowered, and even connecting to this concept of internalized oppression. Working in systems that limit your capacity to express the authenticity of who you are as an occupational being and being genuinely responsive to the needs of your community, when that gets stifled and it feels like you're doing work that's purposeless, that contributes to burnout. When I first started to experience that was coming off of working in school-based practice. And really, I actually came at a time where I felt like I was doing some of my most impactful work in school-based practice. I was helping with developing emerging practice at the high school and adult transition level. And it, the ways that I was aspiring to show what I was capable of in that setting were quite disruptive because it it was a little bit different than how OT had been implemented prior. I ended up feeling discouraged because it was like, oh, even at a time where I'm having like this transformative intervention for one of my clients, it just felt like there was no way for it to move forward. And part of that is I think I needed some space in my life to creatively express how I was developing as a therapist and where I was stewing from like my master's level education, the things that I studied, which were really around like adolescent executive dysfunction. I had been really anxious to exercise that capacity and to look at how I could use assistive technology to transform one of the students' experiences of school. And it was really Um, amazing to see it be effective. And at the same time, it wasn't compatible really with the system that I was in or the pace that it was in. I think that's part of why I went back to school is I needed a space and a container where I could creatively express and explore things in OT practice. And that's what I want to role model for you guys too. I'm not saying that you shouldn't pull your energy out of some of your practice settings that aren't serving your own occupational balance, 
but I do hope to inspire you to create some space in your life to consider these questions and to reconnect with that inner therapist inside of you that hasn't been able to develop in your current setting, that hasn't been currently expressed, to create some space in your life where you can start engaging with that side of yourself with less pressure, with less fear of pushback, to create some creative flexibility in your life and to reimagine new possibilities when we create the space to reflect and think about what OT could look like, what it could be, even in these traditional settings. Sometimes if we make some space for that reflection and some space in our life to build some of these skills outside of our current job, we can start seeing things differently and see ways that we can incorporate and transform how we show up in our current and emerging practices, create space for developing a new practice or seeing new opportunities. And this is often what our clients need to do too. Most of our clients are seeing us where they're also feeling stuck, where they're feeling in a rut because they lost use of one of their arms or something's not working the way that it did before and they're stuck and they need to work with a therapist to imagine new possibilities for their life, to create space to try new things where it's scary and where there's a fail-safe that if they try something new and it doesn't work, it's not going to fully crash. And so what I'm wanting to help create is for you as your own OT (laughs) to create that space for yourself to try new things and to explore what could work by engaging with things differently. So this is the premise of this episode. I I wanted to release another episode from my capstone course because I've also given myself some space to reflect on that body of work and to think and imagining new ways to constitute that and to build a relationship with you guys too. So this discussion here came about with me wanting to explore what it looks like to reconnect with the arts and crafts movement and being open to find and and search for where this movement may still be alive and well today and how it's been evolved. And looking at one of the things that you'll learn about while you start exploring occupational science is the facets that look at occupational alienation, occupational injustice, and even just social justice barriers in general. And what I think is so amazing about adopting that lens and starting to see the context around you systemically and seeing some of what stifles occupational expression and adaptation are these systemic features that we're often a part of in our conventional settings in some ways. We don't always realize that some of the spaces where we have the most agency in our offering might be where we're creating some of those barriers and our challenges with our clients. And what's amazing about getting awareness of that is then you don't actually have to fight a system to change it. We're like fighting ourselves and we can, once we understand it from their perspective, think about how we can do things a little bit differently. In this, um, in this discussion, I'm hoping to share with you and help empower you in starting to build your own more informal community partnerships with allied disciplines, allied contributors that kind of inadvertently have some of the same social justice goals, and thinking about how we can create strategic partnerships to address systemic injustices 
with the benefit of art, expression, doing, actively building community and understanding through different mediums of expression, like through art, and through bringing communities together that are previously systematically separated, and how this can tangibly work to bring balance into our communities and heal from the legacy of systemic racism and issues as important and vital as police brutality and violence in our own communities, where we're currently living in a cultural context in the United States where the outside context isn't habitable for a good portion of humanity. That having a certain demographic intersections get to experience a level of safety in our communities that folks of different demographics may never get to experience in their lifetime and how we really can't change that until we know about it. And this is where following that thread of trying to discover where the threads of the arts and crafts movement have evolved and how they can be revived and incorporated into traditional settings. So this conversation today takes place with, at the time, the executive director of the Social Justice Sewing Academy, which I'm so excited for you guys to learn about and to connect with. And she also happens to, at the time of this discussion, she also worked as a school psychologist. So we got to brainstorm how we could support each other within the already functioning system of inclusive and sometimes called special education, where we were saying like, hey, if I worked at your school as a school-based OT and you were the school-based psychologist and we wanted to do an intervention like the Social Justice Sewing Academy to naturally work on IEP goals, man, we could have done that like tomorrow. Like that wouldn't have required really changing the system much at all is just creating a strategic partnership. And honestly, we still plan to do this because Social Justice Sewing Academy is very interested in incorporating the lens of disability justice into, you know, their programming moving forward. So my goal is for this to inspire you to think about sometimes you don't actually have to fully walk away from the settings you're in, but maybe take some time an ability to take some distance to reflect and not necessarily do more, but consider doing something differently with a little bit more rootedness to values, purpose, meaning, and the sense of not being stuck, but actually moving forward on a systemic problem. And I can't tell you how intoxicatingly empowering that can feel and how much that can become a true antidote to burnout. And this is the gift of OTing yourself and reconnecting to your roots as an occupational being and discovering some of the possibilities that occupational science and an occupational lens can have to really evolve and transform your practice. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to take more energy. It just might mean pulling out some energy, reflecting, and then shifting your perspective and changing how you show up so that as you're engaged, the work you're doing is actually meaningful and supporting your life and values, and at the same time, supporting the client, the community, and the population's values and finding where those shared goals in systemic transformation can take place and that we can actually 
build community, build this occupational ecosystem where human rights are upheld in all of these different contexts. And when we're express and facing systemic barriers, we respond them not with internalized oppression, stagnancy, and burnout, but actually empowerment because we know that there's an alternative when there are barriers because we are OTs and OTAs, we know we have a toolkit to navigate barriers and find empowerment. That is really the goal here. And that's what I'm trying to help facilitate in some ways and to join with you as like a peer role model because I'm doing this for myself as much as I'm hoping to help you find it because I really do want there, I want OT to be a sustainable, accessible, and responsive option to so many different communities that are experiencing challenges around barriers to their ability to self-express and having a healthy and meaningful and connected, inclusive time in their community. And this is never going to get easier to do and so, until we start experimenting with it, until we're open to taking a chance and seeing what can unfold when we try to address burnout in a different way. Well, again, I'm not telling you not to do less. Indeed, I'm working on that too. I'm pulling out. I'm reducing my hours at work so I can step back, reflect, and consider how to use my energy differently. So it's not that my work is slowing down. As I slow down and taking things off your plate, that's one approach to burnout. And then the other approach is sitting, reflecting, gestating, and then seeing how you can continue to use your agency differently in a way that is in alignment with your values, your core interests, your roles, your responsibility with more balance By endeavoring to do this ourselves, I am a firm believer we will get to a place where we can meaningfully offer this to our clients, create transformative services that are just irresistible to so many different folks that need our support, and creating a vision where OT can grow as a sustainable and meaningful profession at every scale of intervention and where we're going. We really need to bring OT back to life, which I don't think we can do without this sense of hope of being able to overcome some of the systemic barriers. I do think that this is work that is very challenging to do alone, and it's so important to build allied community around. So that's my hope, is that this conversation gives an example of how we can start building relationships to address our burnout and our stagnancy differently through incorporating meaningful activity and reflection as part of our navigation through these challenges. I hope that you enjoy this discussion. And I'm excited in the future, we're hoping to share one with you too that also has a similar space for reflection and brainstorming about how we consider that intersection of gender and sexual identity, especially since it's playing like a stronger role in the OTPF4 in the 2020 release. And just quickly before we get into the episode, I'll let you know too, I'm planning to release soon a webinar that is going to go over how I've been able to reflect and relate to understanding how occupational science is now incorporated into the OTPF4 
and many of the new changes to the OTPF4 because I want to make sure that you're informed and you can at least see how I've been able to make sense of my position within the profession through exploring this world for the past three years. And that can maybe give you some guideposts. And I honestly would be exciting to see how your exploration of it might have you relating to it in a completely different way from a different perspective based on your intersectionality as an occupational being. I think that's exciting. I'm really hoping just to be like a peer role model as I try these things on, maybe you'll feel more comfortable trying things along with me. One of my favorite things about this conversation is how we take the developments of the Social Justice Sewing Academy, how we could create a strategic partnership with other social justice aligned professions and reimagine and understand how we can incorporate this into our traditional settings using the already established reimbursement infrastructure that we have, such as Medicare, which defines sewing activities as one of the reimbursable activities in the chapter 15 of the Medicare Part B OT reimbursable service guidelines. So I love that about this discussion is getting that space to reflect and seeing how we can relate to even our established systems differently and then what agency we have to transform these systems and getting inspired by other colleagues and interdisciplinaries and not having a competitive mindset, but more of a collaborative mindset. One of the beautiful things about having shared goals is that automatically creates more resources and less burnout when you're sharing the burden across everybody that has a shared interest in this transformation. So I'm excited to share this conversation with you. Thank you for taking this time and really feel free to reach out. I would love to know how you're responding to this podcast, what you think would be helpful, what sort of resources I can help create. I really want the theme of this year to be community building and helping us OTs that are wanting to offer holistic services in our traditional merging settings to find each other and figure out how we can support each other to build these connections. That's really my goal this year. Thank you so much for joining. Just to orient you a little bit to this project, you're, I'm gonna hoping to include this interview in a module that's talking about occupational therapy and occupational science history and how that ties into the current day and our mm-hmm. current challenges and starting to see our work as something that's intergenerational and connected through those through lines. And sometimes we think of history as oh, that's in the past. We're not doing that anymore. Rather than it's just a constant tie into what we're doing. And we are passing on these batons and looking at that relationship and quilting is just an interesting lens for that. But one of the things is that occupational therapy got started in the arts and crafts movement and the arts and crafts movement, which even created the development of the mental health and the physical health infrastructure in the U.S., It was a reaction to the loss of hands-on trades-based cultivation. I think it started in New England. It was probably centered mostly white people, but it was just that there. this is this loss when we're manufacturing everything. It was a reaction to the impacts of industrialization and by proxy that connects to colonization and imperialism. And so I'm wanting to show that there are still seeds of the arts and crafts movement that are present and active today that we can connect to that maybe has a broader lens of social justice and how we can use art as a way of repairing our minds, our spirits, our bodies, and really healing our community and recognizing when there's been wounding in relation to systemic injustices. And that 
I think the Social Justice Sewing Academy is such a great example of that. And while also encouraging interdisciplinary partnerships, interprofessional partnerships, and just building community responses rather than getting gatekeepy about who gets to do what, <laughs> that part right. of it is hopefully creating openings for mm -hmm. art being more democratized. And that's the spirit of the arts and crafts movement. And that as people that are continuing this legacy, we can hopefully take it farther and deeper than it ever got before instead of stepping away from it. Yeah, no, that sounds great. That sounds great. So I'll just ask you to introduce yourself and then I'll like basically say what I just said. So maybe I'll have to clip that and <laughs> that. And I'm going to try to not talk too much. So I'll hope it'll give you a good amount of space. Okay, so thank you everyone for joining us. I am so excited to feature a discussion today with Lauren Black, and I'm going to let her introduce herself. And Lauren, what was, do you have any initials that you like to be part of your name or anything like that? No, it's okay. okay. <laughs> All right, sounds good. <laughs> and I got connected with Lauren's work when I was engaging in a local quilting guild activity with the Seattle Quilting Guild, and I got to see an amazing presentation about the Social Justice Sewing Academy. And it just gave me chills throughout my whole, I got so excited. At that time, I was just learning about occupational science, and I could see the correlations between how quilting can be a really great medium to connect to that therapeutic power for of occupation and looking at it beyond just the individual level and bringing it back to the arts and crafts movement where we look at how systemic injustice and changes in our outside context it can separate us as a community and since the beginning quilting has been an attempt to bring communities together and to take care and nurture and at the same time, it's just like everything has been impacted by these rifts and in institutional injustices. And at times it's been um, actively appropriated by some of these same corporate fo fo forces and it's evolved over time. For example, speaking from my lineage, quilting had a strong condition within the settler and colonialist area and a lot of Caucasian women of European descent that would come together out of times of scarcity and poverty, come together to quilt something that can then bring warmth and compassion and understanding and coming together in a circle. At the same time, those same urges have also individualized us where quilting has become more of a solo activity or an exclusive one. And so I guess what I'm bringing this up today is the Social Justice Sewing Academy is a great insight into how we can continue following these threads into broadening the who gets to be included in the circle of our crafts and addressing systemic injustices and building bridges between these usually disparate communities. Lauren, do you mind introducing yourself a little bit and giving some context now that I've just been talking around it about what the Social Justice Sewing Academy is? And I'll love to explore with you as we go on about how we can build connections as occupational therapists and occupational therapy assistants to this work and be supportive, bringing more of this lens into our practice today. I hope to explore that together. 
Absolutely. So my name is Lauren Black. I'm the executive director of Social Justice Sewing Academy. I have been working with Social Justice Sewing Academy since 2016, where I was previously the director of operations and then became the executive director about two years ago. And the Social Justice Sewing Academy has evolved in the last six years. We previously, and we still do a lot of work around youth programming and particularly around this intergenerational indirect dialogue. And that's something that is like at the foundation of our work in the sense of we go into schools, community organizations, and we provide workshops and art education workshops for youth. But in those workshops, they are critiquing and raising awareness of issues that are in their local and larger communities. And so that's really impactful because we want to make sure that youth are having a voice in some of these issues and where they typically would not. And so we're allowing and hoping that textile art can be the bridge for that. And for a lot of youth, they don't recognize textile art as something as a way to express themselves or as a medium that they can use, particularly in the form of activism. So it's A, getting them to understand that this is something that's cool, first of all, and then B, something that they can utilize to express their criticisms or how they feel about things that are going on in their communities. And then from there, we have individuals from across the country that are engaging with that art. So individuals that will never meet the youth will probably never see them face to face, but they get to have that, as I mentioned, that intergenerational indirect dialogue. So you're sitting with the art that youth from some city across the country created, and you get to see the issues that they care about. And so our hope with that is that it is inspiring action for individuals in the sense of you're having hard conversations with the people in your communities. You're taking it that step further. You're Yes, you're embroidering their art, but you're doing more in terms of the particular issue. So it doesn't just stop at the art itself, that there is an action behind that. And we do a lot to generate community with our volunteers as well in terms of so days. And so gathering our volunteers to have conversations all together where we have 20 blocks in front of us from a group or from a workshop, and we're discussing these issues. We're talking about how we can contribute to, how we can educate ourselves. And so all of that textile art is at the foundation of all of that. And so we've also transitioned a little bit to doing remembrance projects. Remembrance projects are honoring individuals through textile art through the same way, allowing for education and awareness. But there's also an emotional process in that as well, because you're honoring someone's life and doing so through, again, a medium that many others would necessarily utilize to do such. So it's another form of activism, but allowing textile art to be at the foundation of that. Do you mind if I just break? Down a little bit for those that are listening to this for the first time. And I'll let you guys know that are listening to this interview that I will link out to the Social Justice Sewing Academy website, which links out to also their social media accounts and profiles, a lot of the different projects that they've been working on, where you said for maybe the past six years or so. So, from what I remember in learning about the origin story of Social Justice Sewing Academy, as it came about that one of your founders was very connected to the quilting world through their development and was very active in a lot of the traditional sewing and even almost like the industry events. And they had a, in our class, we talked about what's called a disorienting dilemma, where there's some sort of event that causes you to really re-question your foundations. And it sounds like for Sarah Trail, right? Am I saying her name right? The death of Trayvon Martin was a very stirring and a reflective event. And that was something that she was wanting to use the medium of quilting to process and recognize and look at how that looked at 
played out in the fabric of United States history and found that she, it was difficult to have that be welcoming in the quilting community as it was typically established. And that really inspired her to utilize quilting as a medium to bring these conversations and build community where there was safe space to have those conversations and also to challenge and disrupt why it wasn't safe to have those conversations in traditional quilting guild environments. And that's what you're talking about, that dialogue and building these communities, bringing this together is it's connecting and bringing quilting to more marginalized or systemically Actually, like you're saying, all youth are marginalized systemically. So bringing these conversations even into some school districts that are maybe well-resourced, you have been able to simplify these tasks of quilting into a workshop where just about anybody can be provided a quilt block. I think you do a simple quilt block and more of a decoupage style after having a discussion about systemic injustices and you give a full platform for those that are falling into that more marginalized status to express what they care about and how social justice, how it connects in their community. And then maybe that quilt block can then be sent out to professional or amateur embroiderers, sewers that get to take in the message from that really ground center where there's no censorship of what the youth can put on the quilt. Do you want to add some details that maybe I've left out or anything? Yeah. So a lot of that was pretty spot on in the sense that Sarah was moved and motivated by the death of Trayvon Martin in large part because he was around our age. So Sarah and I were were about three weeks apart. I think he was a couple weeks in age from her as well. And so it was, as you said, a very disorienting experience, particularly for her. She wanted to process that through quilting. And that was her way to express her feelings because she felt like that could have been me. And we were the same age. We're African-American. And she had for a very long time been in the quilting industry since she was a teenager and she's been writing books and sewing books. And so to be met with the ideas that quilting shouldn't be a political space, that this should just be a hobby. This should just be something that we do for fun. And to have a lot of the resistance and just outright like racist racism and bigotry that surrounded that particular quilt and has also surrounded some of the art that Estrusay has created since then. It was really challenging for her to access these spaces that Usually she was welcomed into with like open arms. Yeah, maybe. I wonder how much. I'd be curious to see how she's reflected on this event too about like when times, what sorts of quilting were previously okay. Like maybe it's okay and you can access this community if you express yourself in this way. But if you choose to express yourself in this way, then you maybe you're stepping on trip wires. All of a sudden you crossed a line right. in some way. I, I can imagine that. I'm sure we've all had that experience as therapists in a way that, okay, the therapeutic supports that I offer are okay and are advisable or sanctioned as long as they're in this context. But as soon as I bring it, as soon as I acknowledge maybe some of these broader injustice types issues, then we can start getting that pushback and it can be really, it can be, that's where I think it gets so distinct discouraging as a therapist and taking Mm -hmm. on some of these issues. And I love that Sarah and Social Justice Sewing Academy has taken that step of sometimes when we get pushback in one area, 
it can inspire us to figure out and see how can we use our agency and how can we create right. space in another in another area so that we can keep this conversation moving forward. Absolutely. And I think she's had opportunities to reflect on it, but we've also had similar experiences. And we also have frequent experiences at quilt shows where people will tell us to our faces that this is not the art that they want to see. This is not what they came to quilt shows for. We created we had a youth in a workshop that created an injustice block where there was like a pencil eraser that erased like the N and that was met with so much um, pushback from individuals that just, you know, and it was just something as simple as the word injustice. And we were just erasing the N and individuals felt like that was not the space that this should not be on quilting platforms. We shouldn't see this on social media. So it's really interesting how certain individuals perceive and absorb some of the information and kind of people's interactions and reactions to the art that we create. Because for a lot of people, this is therapeutic in the sense of it's raising awareness. It It's emotional. It is challenging to look at some of this because it's having you confront some of your own biases. It's having you do some of that internal work. And that can be hard. But for a lot of people, it is the automatic rejection of, I don't even want to engage with, and this does not have a place here. And so that is very interesting to continue to navigate that space, particularly through an art form. Sure. And I would say that some of the seeds of the arts and crafts movement were convergent with or around the same time as the developments of the Civil War in the United States. And I think to think about that, that there's always been a place where utilizing art has been a mode of expression of resistance or of really, it's always been controversial to assert the humanity of marginalized people. Something that I have come across in learning more about the history of occupational therapy that made me so excited about the really, and it sounds like the Social Justice Sewing Academy, even amid COVID has continued to grow and become like, it's been a very successful enterprise and has really built so many partnerships. So one of the things we talked about in this course is how these things, these disorienting dilemmas, even though they're uncomfortable and they're um, really challenge us, it becomes this fertile soil that seeds of agency and solutions can go from and that they can almost can guide us into new opportunities. That growth is often uncomfortable. So we're encouraging the students here to embrace that discomfort and that resistance. What did I want to say? But one of the histories of occupational therapy, one of our founders Dr. Dunton, I can't remember his first name. I think it's William, but I might get it wrong. But he's one of the founders of psychiatry. And he's a one of the initial, he's considered a founding father of occupational therapy. And he really pioneered something similar. And I shouldn't say pioneer, that's another example of settler-based terminology that gets into this context. But he also did something with a simplified block in the sanitariums and the mental health asylums at that time of utilizing group craft together in communities that are typically silenced. And that's something that maybe we can connect with, because I know that you work as a school psychologist as well. So that's one of the points of connection that we had. I think even at the time that I met you, I was fresh out of leaving school-based practice. So that's been some something I've used quilting as well to try to work through. But a lot of our clients that live with disabilities, they're considered systemically invisible since the beginning. They've almost been considered like 
almost a disposable population. And like often we don't have the research to support our practice because nobody wanted to fund it. Nobody wanted to invest in these services other than almost doing kind of performative activism. Honestly, if you look at our founding, there was a lot of lip service. In some cases, I almost think that they were investing more back then than they are now. But we're starting to have that conversation today. I guess what I'm bringing forward too is can you do you connect with some of the I'm curious how you position yourself with your background as a school psychologist in the social justice zoning academy and what are your sort of thoughts on how we can work together in how the arts and crafts movement or how we're having these conversations while acknowledging that this work has almost always gotten pushed back and been challenging so we almost need to think about how do we support each other and how do we keep this going despite the knowing that we're likely to get systemic pushback, that it's just controversial in itself to acknowledge the humanity of populations that are systemically marginalized. Yeah. So for me as a school psych, sorry, there's an airplane nothing coming behind me. But for me as a school psych, a large part of it is looking at it in two different ways. So one is making sure that all work we do is through an equitable lens. And so we have had several workshops. We have to make accommodations. We have to make sure that every individual is able to access the materials that we are presenting. And so that's something that we keep in mind. And for me, it's at the forefront of everything that we do in the sense of that we know that everyone's coming to this from a different perspective, from a different lens, different cultural background and awareness. And so we have to shift how we engage the language that we utilize, the materials, all of that has to shift to adjust to that. Because the workshop that I'm going to do in a more affluent area is not going to be the same workshop I'm going to do in an underserved community. So I have to make sure that I'm aware of that walking in the door. And even the youth and the difference in the youth that are within that particular workshop. So being as equitable and inclusive as I possibly can. And I think also being mindful of the emotional labor of this work as a school psych. And so being careful about how I frame these conversations, because youth are very aware, more so than I think adults realize about, or just individuals in general, about some of these issues that are impacting their communities. And so it's giving them some of the language and the tools to talk about BTQ issues, to talk about racism, talk about mental health and bullying. And for a lot of them, it's really challenging to say those things out loud. It's challenging to say that this is something that is either harming me directly or indirectly or something that I'm affected by. And so providing that space for them. So it's not just therapeutic in the sense of the art itself, but in, even in the conversations. So it's like allowing them the a safe space through conversations with their peers that they may or may not have even touched on some of these issues. A lot of their peers may not even know this is something that's important to them, or this might be contrary to their parents' beliefs, or their family's beliefs. So for them, this is the first time that they've engaged in this conversation with a complete stranger. And just how to have that kind of conversation is hard. And so walking them through that, of this is completely safe. I'm not judging you. There is nothing in this that I'm going to walk away and say, I can't believe they said. This is, I want you to feel all of your feels. I want and we can name those feelings. We could talk through those feelings. And because all of that is going to eventually make the art you create so much stronger. But I want us to have this conversation first. Because yes, that's the end product. But we're going to have, if we have to have a mini group counseling session, that's what we're going to do in terms of really bringing that full circle for them. So I really try to situate myself with that. And then in terms of knowing about, this is going to be hard. It's going to continue to be hard. We're going to continue to get pushback. And I know a lot of the issues and pushback we get 
are around race. We don't get the same pushback when we have climate change quilts. We don't get the same pushback when we have quilts about bullying or about mental health. We don't get those kind of issues. But when it has to do with race or police brutality in particular, we get significant pushback on that because those are really polarizing issues. And those are issues that have been, particularly with the help of social media, have been continued to be polarized. And so it's really challenging for people to have those conversations and discussions around it. But for us, it drives us to want to do the work even more. So it's saying, okay, yes, it's hard. People are not going to agree with everything we're saying and we're doing. They may not want us in this space, but that's all the more reason we need to be in this space. Because if you only have one perspective, then that's all that you're going to hear. You've only heard from people that agree with you, who align with your beliefs, and that's all you're going to see here and move forward with. But at least, yeah, you may not agree, but at least you saw it. And so that's going to be a conversation you're going to have with your family, your friends of, yes, you didn't agree with it, but at least you took that in for five, 10 minutes. And so that's all the more reason why. So it's, it's the hope that eventually you'll be leaned towards or motivated towards educating. You'll be leaned towards having those hard conversations that you'll take it that step forward. It may not happen that day. That's fine. But we're going to continue to show up. We're going to continue to have these conversations because again, a lot of the spaces that we go into, people are so used to seeing one perspective. And so we come in and disrupt that and they have a really challenging time with that. And so it's being comfortable with the controversy and being comfortable with the fact that we're going to be met with pushback. And it's like, that's a part of this work. Like everyone is not going to like everything that we do. And that's a large part of that. And so it's really like sitting with that and using that as a motivating factor instead of a deterrent for our work. And I think that's a great thing to have a historic lens on mm-hmm. in a way that a lot of 80% of occupational therapists at least tend to be European descent, maybe semi-avalent, systemically advantaged individuals. And part of the pride, I think, too, of the development of occupational therapy in a way is that we've we've experienced our own as a cohort. A lot of occupational therapy came up with first and second wave feminism and acknowledging that systemic sexism is something that we have the legacies of till this day in this field where there's this presumed paternalism that we have to have the physician sign off and oversee everything that we do. Just the notion that arts and more nurturing based therapeutic services or helping people with say the activities of daily living and those basic life skills, because it's more feminized, it's not as likely to be systemically valued or it is viewed as unskilled at at the beginning round. And I just bring this up as a bridge of understanding where one systemic oppression also lends to another, just like sexism is part of the fabric of the development of the Western healthcare system and mental health system in this country. Racism is also something that is built into the fabric and that we, as a feminized workforce and as people that are part of stewarding work through the lens of care. I like when you look at something as quilting where everything's connected to each other and we're looking at the the fabric, we can join in these pieces and know that the power of the resistance of the, the arts and crafts movement in this country, that's part of what gave birth for the space of the development of a feminized workforce and that we're legacies of, and we can now use that systemic advantage 
that our occupational therapy ancestors created and opened up for us is now the reason that we're here. We can use that privilege and that agency to point out where we can make space to address and disrupt so that this ultimate quilt that we're building together can look a little bit different. And I love that. I know that it's social justice sewing, sewing academy. It's not necessarily a therapeutic process or something that you're wanting to do with the lens of like through purely like mental health or a therapeutic lens. But there's also that sense of we're starting a conversation with an invitation to do something constructive, that it's not just instigating for instigating's sake. It's through also an invitation to heal and create together and build connections. And I think that that's such a great power there that we are inheritors of, that there was an impulse with the arts and crafts movement that where there was pain in a community and you brought visibility to it and you created something tangible that was previously invisible and it's visible. It then becomes a platform that we can respond to to be kind of medicine for our community. I'm just curious about if that is part of the Social Justice Sewing Academy's ethos is also just making these things visible so that we can ultimately heal some of these rifts in our country or the imbalances in our social structures that we're living in. Yes, absolutely. And that's a a large part of why we do what we do is we want to make sure people are seeing it. So we put it in communities, we put it in museums, we're putting it in some of these places and spaces and the sense of that there is healing involved for those that can identify with some of these issues, but also, like I said, some of those conversations, but for the sake of visibility, because a lot of these individuals, particularly youth, I mentioned previously, that is an area where they have been voiceless. They have been perpetually silenced for multiple different ways. And also some of the individuals that we work with, like they come from communities where they don't have anyone to amplify their stories and their voices. And this is our way of doing that. So this is our way of allowing them a a little bit of healing in the sense of that you get to communicate this through textile art. You don't have to get in front of individuals and speak about it and tell your story and re-traumatize yourself in that way. And no one's going to be direct. It's not going to necessarily be directly correlated back to you. So there's no paper trail of anyone necessarily finding out. So you get to walk away from it knowing that you created something that other people are going to engage with, but that you don't have to necessarily deal with the mental and emotional strain of what may come or the pushback from that directly necessarily, but it's going to be visible in the sense that people are going to be positively or potentially negatively impacted by what you have translated into the text art, what is going to be the quilt, what is, and you get to see how all these different elements are strung together. And it's really fascinating, especially with different communities where you see similar themes of things that they are passionate about, things that they care about. And you see how ingrained it is in that particular community, how much it's infecting, uh, impact in this community. And so that is why it's so important for us to take it from that community. Yes, they get to keep it for a little bit, but take it from that community and take it to other areas. So that's, People understand that this is something that this community in South Los Angeles or this community in Iowa or whichever community that we've interacted with, there are people from across the country that are going to have the opportunity to understand that this is something that is impacting them. This is something that they have, they feel very strongly about enough to A, put it onto textile art, but B, because they want us to see, they want us to learn from it. They want us to have our own journey and moment with whatever they have created and like that visibility is extraordinarily important to our work 
And it's not, it's just going beyond just the art part of it, but we want to make sure their eyes and it gets in front of the appropriate eyes and hopefully eyes that are going to make change and want to donate or protest or read and educate or whatever, but also just individuals that to say that this is something that is impacting a community I might also identify with. There might be a 14-year-old Black student in North in New York that I can identify with some of the issues that you know she's translated onto her quote block. I can identify with this school group who has talked a lot about racism and police brutality in their community. So it's saying that it's also that identification and self-awareness for you as well. And that's why the visibility is so important and why we have it translate across different communities. I think to me, too, one of the things that has been part of my own reflective process of being socialized as a Midwestern, Christianized, pretty well-resourced Caucasian woman in the United States is there have been, there's a lot of investment in some of our social structures and keeping, I think, young people and a lot of white women insulated and sheltered from accurate information about how about how our structures are actually impacting, for example, like the lens of police and police violence. One of the things that you might be, if you're like me, Christianized in my Midwest white woman, you've probably been told, really call the police. If something's wrong, call the police. Something's there. And if you don't know what impact that is having in other communities and how that could be actually reinforcing systemic harm for other members and other human beings in our community, if you don't have awareness of that, there's also not the opportunity to correct that behavior. And I I see that as also a social justice issue of keeping information blind and not being recognizing where systemic harm is being perpetuated. So I think, too, something like the Social Justice Sewing Academy, it's an opportunity for those of us in more of a privileged status to also get that full information and to undo some of those agendas of obscuring the information. I know something I'm really invested in. I actually saw you have a great resource on your website that looks like it was a compilation of reflections from a variety of your community members. And I know one seemed to be a reflection, I think of another person from the Seattle area, reflecting on her grandmother what worked as a social worker during Japanese internment. And sometimes that helping impulse that we have and that interest to be of genuine giving in our community can get weaponized if we're not aware of how it fits into the systemic contributions. And I think that's something that I'm sure you've got to witness too as a school psychologist. Sometimes we get positioned more as apologists or withholders and gatekeepers. And what I love about projects like this and bringing more visibility is it gives you agency, even as a privileged person in this context, to see that your naivete, that your impulse to help doesn't somehow get accidentally weaponized. Or if it does, you can have the opportunity to bring some repair to those communities. Like, for example, I got an opportunity to partner with my mom and a neighbor in quilting to create a remembrance quilt for a victim of gun and police violence, which really brought that issue present in our home to be an active conversation. And it really made it real to consider the real victims of police violence rather than just something that you think might be the media manipulating you with controversial dialogue. When we had an opportunity to sit with the reality that in this context, like a six-year-old's life got taken from police violence. When you actually sit with a quilt, 
you actually get to make real the losses that are happening in the American community in a way that humanizes us across that degree of difference. It's a, such a beautiful thing to bring that opportunity to have our goodwill and our really connection to bring healing into our community because it's barricaded off by these barriers. It also just gave an opportunity, I feel like for us as like semi-privileged white ladies to genuinely have our impulses go to the right place and not get weaponized, if that makes sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of volunteers can mirror that experience in, in terms of, and that's why the Remembrance Project was so important. And it was came at a very pivotal time. And I think it came at a time where a lot of people had a lot more access to some of these systemic injustices. And I think the social media has done a, a great job of giving firsthand accounts of how this is impacting people. And I think 2020 was, we all had to stop and pay attention for more reasons than one. We had ample opportunity to stop and listen and pay attention. And for a lot of people, that was their first time and their awakening into some of these issues. And it was the first time really having to sit and digest how this is impacting communities and some of the ways that you were saying of like, it's not as abstract of you know, this is happening someplace far away and it doesn't impact me at all, but how am I potentially contributing to these injustices? How am I working within these systems that I may be trying to disrupt, but I'm still benefiting from. So it raised a lot of awareness for a lot of different people. And these particular projects, that's why they were so important because you get to sit with someone's life and honor them. And so you get, to, it makes it real in ways that it may not be in just by looking at it on social media, looking at the news, but it humanizes that these are individuals. People love them and care about them. They had lives, they had things that they were contributing to, and they're not just a headline. They're not just the worst moment of their life, but they were people that lived and and were loved. And so it's like focusing on that aspect of it and having those individuals who want to contribute in some way. A lot of it, we had a lot of volunteers that, what can I do? How can I help? And so a large part of that for us was that resource that you were talking about of you have to, a part of that was educate yourself first, because we want to make sure that yes, by well-intentioned, even some of the most well-intentioned volunteers can unfortunately inflict harm. And that's not to say that it's definitely not poor intention, but it's just not necessarily realizing the ways that things are communicated or they come across, or if you have been indoctrinated to believe certain things, then, you know, that may not necessarily be portrayed in the way that you want it to be. So the gift too of being made visible of that is also, Mm -hmm. I think if you have something like, for example, I fell victim to that of feeling, oh, if something's wrong in my community, I got to call the police at the first stop. That's part of my socialization. And at first, when I found out about that, oh man, I was writing waves of guilt. To know the real impact of having that be the frontline response was somewhat debilitating. But Mm -hmm. in a way, whenever you have those visibility come aware to you, it's kind of like you have a cut on your body. (laughs) If you're dissociated from it, you don't know what's there. But once you see it and you can feel it, there's a gift in that because you can, that's a place where you have agency. That's a place where you can act right away. Once you get brought visibility to it, it's something where you don't actually have to go to any gatekeepers or go through different layers of approvals. You can start working on recalibrating that in the moment. And we can work from feeling that guilt or feeling those negative emotions. We talk about navigating a disorienting dilemma and we're connecting folks to some resources so that they can feel supported while some of, like you said, this really emotionally stirring as we face our collective history together. 
our, our history is very complex. It can be as tragic as it is amazing. It's all part of the fabric of America was really sown from seeds of pain and disconnection. We all have a lot of intergenerational trauma work to do. But I just want to bring up that part of this is moving through those emotions of awareness where we had been indoctrinated, socialized in ways that aren't helpful. Once we find out they're not helpful, that's great information because now we have immediate action that we can take to recalibrate and learn from the dialogue. So when people give us feedback about where it's hurting, especially as therapists, wow, what an amazing and immediate action step that we can take to repair the system around it. To know we're part of the system means we also are part of the change that can happen from the awareness of where things can be done differently. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. And I think that's something that I definitely motivate volunteers to do. And that's like why we do what we do in the sense of there are a lot of people that struggle with guilt and that I don't know how to move forward from this place. And yes, it is like, again, having that self-awareness is I'm proud of you for even getting to that point of knowing that acknowledging that those feelings exist within yourself. And then, okay, what does that next step mean for you? Does it mean re-educating yourself? It means unlearning and relearning some of like how we engage with certain populations in a way that's productive and a way that's culturally conscious and a way that's going to have some of these interactions that these genuine interactions moving forward. But then how do we bring that back to our immediate communities? So it's like, how, what does that look like? Are we having these hard conversations? What does that look like when we engage with, when we go back to work, when we engage with our families, how do we continue to bring that work into all of our spaces that we work with then? So it's like transforming that and sitting with those feelings. Absolutely. Cause that's, you have to do that. You've, if you've known something for 20, 30 years, it's really hard to take a week to unlearn. That's going to take time. And we're not ignorant to that. No one is disorienting dilemma process. (laughs) It's a beautiful reflective process. And I think too, what I've heard from you is that, especially with us being positioned in this as therapists, I feel like there's Mm -hmm. always an opportunity to increase the accessibility as our own awareness gets broadened. We can consider what can it, who else might be marginalized from accessing this opportunity or this space. We often have a lot of We have a lot of privilege in these systems, even though sometimes it doesn't feel like it, where we can think about how can I use this now new awareness that I have to connect others to this opportunity or to highlight other voices that might not have had the opportunity to be expressed yet. That's part of the gift is seeing where as we get more of the picture visible, we can use that as a flashlight to unfold. There's so many different layers of systemic exclusion. That once you take your awareness, think that of that as a gift to keep broadening how we can make this more inclusive, more accessible, and that we can start bearing witness to some of the pain to work through in the community. And then also, how does that advocacy look like for the individuals that we're serving? What does that look like in terms of amplifying their voices? And how do we do that in a way that's meaningful, in a way that's not performative, and we're not virtue signaling, but in a way that's genuine to them, in a way that we're putting their needs at the forefront? And so I think that's something that I bring from my work as a school psychologist and from working in schools too, is that I advocated extraordinarily hard for my students. And a lot of that comes from these frameworks. A lot of that is understanding the community that I'm in, understanding the needs that of that particular community, understanding my own unlearning and relearning. And because I was from that community, but everyone, there is an acknowledgement of bias on all fronts. So it's like acknowledging and confronting those, being able to work through those in terms of how am I going to continue that advocacy work on behalf of these communities and in support of these communities 
as a therapist and what does that look like moving forward? And how do I hold my coworkers accountable? How do I hold these other these systems accountable? What does that look like? So open you know, questions. Do you find right. too though, like I found in trying to do that work, especially in the school context where, you know, just as harsh as the pushback is at school shows, it's possibly even harder <laughs> in school-based settings, or it can get really real when it's part of our day-to-day job, the systems that we're working in. And a lot of those that are in this course right now, they're working in school-based practice settings, they're working in mental health settings. Sometimes OTs are working in incarceration and forensic settings in hospitals all really like really hot frontline points where some of these social determinants are happening that are creating these adverse incomes. For example, if anybody's here on this call and you haven't heard of the school to prison pipeline, that is a really key place to expand some of our awareness and to think about the role that we play as frontline helping providers. And again, I'm not saying to take action on any of this now. We're just bringing awareness and we're bringing community Part of my initial impulse in in starting this conversation is saying what I've noticed when I've been on those front lines is I've, I think I've really needed support when you're going through pushback in these systems or you said, oh, how do I hold myself accountable? How do I hold my coworkers accountable? I just want to maybe use this as a lens of talking about the importance of interdisciplinary partnerships and building lenses of how other clinicians, other people that are in the system, how we really need to support each other in this work. And I don't know if you've been on school teams where it can feel like school psychologists versus the speech therapist and versus the occupational therapists or parents versus the administration. And we can get in a it, thinking about our professions as ways that pull us apart. And this course is challenging to think of us first and foremost as like human beings. And maybe like I will say a lot of my allies haven't been within the occupational therapist that I work with in school-based practice because I'm really interested in utilizing my position to reduce, say, behavioral referrals or make sure that we can try to get students of color that maybe aren't getting flagged for the need for medically necessary services that are maybe delivered to more of a punitive approach than a more of a rehabilitated one. Or in the same vein, you have somebody that maybe is overly medicalized or something to have those conversations. I might be more likely to be in allyship with you as a school psychologist than maybe even some of my occupational therapists. I guess I just wanted to open up the conversation of what do you think about the need to build diverse partnerships within the organizations that we work with that think a little bit differently than our little siloed wheelhouses sometimes and how we go about advocating for ourselves the students we work with, the clients that we work with, the importance that it is to build community around taking on some of these systemic challenges. Yeah, I think that's something that was at the forefront of the work that I did in the schools. And I worked really hard to create partnerships with the OT, PT, the SLP, just like all of the acronyms, but all of these different clinicians in terms of we're all working towards a common goal. We're all here to support our students and our families. And yes, it's really easy to sit in our offices and stick to our caseloads and get stuck in that and wrapped in that and think there's nothing else that goes beyond that. But there's also, there's power in numbers and there's administration can ignore one person. They can't ignore 10. So if we're saying collectively as clinicians, this is something that is impacting our students and something that's impacting our families, or this is something systemically that we need to do differently to benefit our students. It's a lot more challenging them for them to ignore that 
when we have the support of each other, we have the support of our departments to say that this needs to change. And that's something that I worked really, I worked against and I had a lot of challenges with that at my school because there were systemic issues and it was a lot, it was hard for me as one person. Okay, well, that's just her saying this so we can push that to the side. It's not really important. But when you have the SLP and you have OT also saying, yes, no, this particular student is being impacted in this way. How can we as a team come together? Because again, we're working to benefit this student. How can we as a team come together to strategize, create a system of care? What can we do to support this particular student? So it's making sure that we might have disagreements in terms of like services or in terms of that's a given, but ultimately we are working towards the common goal of supporting our students. So what does that look like? It's making sure that overall we're on the same page and we're advocating for their needs as best as we can and I think, across. Sorry to cut you off. Oh, I just think too, also that question of knowing if you find others that are interested in utilizing more of that social justice lens in your practice as a therapist and creating space for that to be meaningful, because really it is a pressing question anywhere in the globe, but particularly in the United States. It, you will explore together some of the history of the United States in particular, racism, systemic sexism, acknowledging the genocidal practices that sort of were part of coordinating the foundings of the, the institutions that are now currently in power in this country. That's present in every setting that we're working in. So whether or not you want to work on politics, whether you want to work on justice or not, can't escape it. And if you really look at the history, just like you look at the history of quilting, the history of arts and crafts movement, you're going to see some sort of controversy. You're going to see some sort of tension. You're going to see some sort of politic, political context that gave rise to why we're even here. I, if you think back to the disability rights movement, you don't have the disability rights movement. You don't have school psychologists. You don't have school-based occupational therapists. That arose because you had coalitions built from people with disabilities themselves speaking on their own path and acknowledging their own humanity. That's what gave rise to us here. So you might be thinking, there's no place for politics. There's nothing here. We're all working in policy. We're all talking about IEPs. We're talking about federal law. We're talking about state law. We're talking about county budgets. There's no escaping it. So one of the things that we can consider in looking at this systemically is also how do we support our fellow clinicians, our fellow parents, our clients to sustain in the emotional labor of this work that you're talking about. And I think it's really important to think about how we can support each other to sustain when you notice somebody's getting scapegoated or there is some triangulation going on at your district. There might be a school psychologist that needs your support and your encouragement. And that's a good way to show up and really support the evolution of our systems is also looking at how we support each other across our different lenses of a situation. Because if we really do have the same goal, it's good to just look out, find those people too, the teachers that could be in different contexts. And you can even imagine it can even be the custodial staff that are wanting to start correct some of these imbalances in our system. And if you can source them out and, and then you can resource each other too. So some of it is you can feel alone in this. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, Lauren, but I've sometimes felt really alone in taking on justice work and we don't have to do it alone. We can make visible some of this work and support each other. And I think that's a large part of it is, you know, just communicating with your team. It's like, and it's really and truly just building that, that team in the sense of, like you're saying, disrupting some of these things, but it's really easy for us to sit in our offices. It's really easy to 
focus or it's really easy to say, I have to do this by myself because no one else understands, but it's having those conversations of how can we support each other, whether it be emotionally, whether that be, we both need to go talk to administration together, whatever that looks like, but it really is bridging that across the different disciplines because it's really hard to take on that work by yourself and come up against an entire administration and departments like that is extraordinarily challenging. It's not impossible. What is this? very challenging to do. And it can be very isolating because you feel like I'm the only person fighting on behalf of my entire school system. And I, there's only so much I can do as a human being. There's only so much I can shoulder there's only, and still take care of my caseload and still show up to IEP meetings and still talk to parents. That's a lot for any one person. So it's building those connections with your team and making sure that you're on the same page of, yes, we understand that systemically, there are some issues that are impacting our family, our school community. How can we work together to and work with administration, work with the school community. How can we work together to eradicate some of these issues? Not to say it's going to happen overnight. We recognize that. But what can we do to create systems to lessen the impact uh, that these issues are having on our school community? And that comes from building some of these. And whether, like you said, a, it could be teachers, it could be custodians, it could be parents, it could be parent volunteers, whoever it may be, whatever part of your school community. And the sense of kind of like repairing the impact of these systems for the benefit of our students and for ourselves, because we have to work within those systems. And that's challenging to work within. I kind of want to call myself out or call myself in too, even in framing that one of the things I love about Social Justice Sewing Academy and also where the developments of our field are challenging us to go as we take on systemic justice challenges. I think just about every professional organization, hopefully, if not, that's a good fame of advocacy, most of our professional associations are making a commitment to address systemic imbalances, especially around racism, through not just the passing of Trayvon Martin, but also we're bringing awareness to the victims of police violence and systemic imbalances everywhere. It's a great impetus for all of us to join together in this work. But what's most important, too, is centering who we are trying to be the beneficiaries of our services, right? So the power of the disability rights movement was that it was led by people with disabilities and that moniker of nothing about us without us. So really our most important partnership and coalition building is on the students that are receiving our services, the the families that aren't accessing our services. So how do it's not just the connections that we can make within the system with the different professionals that are at play, but are we making space to listen to who is receiving our services and what's genuinely of interest to them, which you can only discover from something like the Social Justice Sewing Academy or creating space to listen to new concerns that we haven't even heard of. Because a lot of the things that come from us from a professional context, get filtered through several levels of systemic bias. By the time it's a product of our academic literature, of our best practices, it could be 30 years away from the initial people that inspired the development of that project. So I think what I, part of what I love about Social Justice Sewing Academy, is it's in lifetime listening to the voices and the stories of folks that our systems often don't see. That can be one of our most important partnerships to start building. And we can start small. And I I want to be mindful too of time. I hope do you have space for 10 more minutes or so? <laughs> Hopefully. Okay. I wanted to share my screen with you briefly. Let me share here. So let me make this bigger. 
So this is Medicare's guidelines for what is considered a covered service for occupational therapy providers. And I just wanted to let the folks on the screen know that this is something that Medicare covers. This is our medical side of our field. And it say it includes the planning, implementing and super, supervised of individualized therapy activity programs as part of an overall active treatment program, say for patients diagnosed with psychiatric illness, such as the use of sewing activities that require pattern recognitions to reduce confusion, restore reality orientation to schizophrenic patients. So that's right there, straight from Medicare, the thing that drives everything in the medical side of what's considered a covered service. And right there, it says sewing activity. And we are all about using purposeful, meaningful engagement and client-centered activity. And you'll know as part of this course that the Occupational Therapy Association has committed to a occupational justice framing and that we have ethical guidelines that drive our use of activity. And I don't have the documentation here in front of me, but we all know that occupational therapy as a federal ruling can work with folks with fine motor <laughs> challenges and fine motor skill sets that are often needed to access and participate in meaningful school activities. So one of the things when I found out, Lauren, that you're a school psychologist, and when I found out that a lot of these social justice sewing academy workshops are being facilitated in schools, and it was, oh, wow we don't actually really have to change the system around us to start doing this work as occupational therapists because we can all think of probably at least 30 kids in our, in our caseload that would have trouble accessing that workshop and participating with their peers. So I just wanted to bring this up to maybe inspire therapists that are interested in looking at Social Justice Sewing Academy and thinking and imagining even spaces where this work where they haven't been able to expand to yet. I'm sure even you as an organization would love to do more work in settings where incarceration is taking place, maybe institutions where folks are tracked away from K-12 institutions or in more alternative school environments, maybe students with disabilities or multiple diagnostic quote-unquote profiles. Today, there are maybe individuals and systems that, that something like the Social Justice Sewing Academy would be interested in growing from. Some of that fertile soil that you right now could be a catalyst as an occupational therapist. And without even having to change the solution, you could work on scissor skills. You could work on shape and orientation. Because don't the, for the, for a typical Social Justice Sewing Academy workshop, it probably involves some of the skills cutting, coloring, shaping in order to get the idea from what's in your mind you would probably have to know what the concepts are, which might require adapting some of the instruction even too, to be graded for say, if you have an individual with an intellectual disability, what does it mean to relate to the history of, and it, weren't you saying too, Lauren, that you have more interest, like expanding the lens of disabilities, the frontier that you guys haven't fully taken on. And that's something that I'm definitely interested in, especially as a school psychologist, but and especially as someone that has a background in working with individual disabilities across a variety of different capacities. So absolutely. And that's a huge part of our workshops. So would love to be able to build SSA out in that particular way. Absolutely. If any OT is thinking, oh, I 
you got me. I'm interested in social justice. I want to connect my clients to this, but the system's just against me. I can't do this. Um, or we have to wait until we get funding from this source. What I'm seeing right now and learning about what Social Justice Sewing Academy has done more as a grassroots effort. I can see how I could partner with somebody like Lauren or maybe build relationships with a school psychologist and social workers or teachers and try to invite doing a workshop at the school that I'm at. And if I'm working on fine motor skills, and if you mm -hmm. get questioned about it, you can refer to the ethics guidelines that we're showing you. We can defer to the literature that's published from occupational science and occupational justice, where you could contextualize. This is why you're talking about it. But at the end of the day, you're working on fine motor skills and access and participation. So we can think strategically and build partnerships. And I imagine, I don't want to imposition you, but I'm sure that Social Justice Sewing Academy would be open to occupational therapists, occupational therapy assistants, and even students. You don't necessarily, you can even support a project like this just in your own time as a human being without it being connected to your work. Sometimes that's a great way to sustain in social justice work is detethering it a little bit from where you're getting your income, maybe being more of a social justice approach person. Some people do that more on their off time than at their work. That could be a strategy that you use, right? But mm -hmm. this is accessible. This is present. This is today. And it's part of our legacy as being inheritors of the arts and crafts movement. We could actually pick up where that left off and even expand and broaden the definition of who gets included. Because at the beginning, it didn't include a lot of racial identities other than folks of Caucasian descent or European immigrant descent. We mm -hmm. have an invitation now to pick up where they left off and maybe going a little bit further than they dared to go. Maybe it's a little bit safer today than it would have been a hundred years ago. Absolutely. And we'll love to like construct curriculum around that. Like I'm very much open to that, especially as a school psychologist and thinking about talking about social skills and frustration tolerance and all of those things. There's so many ways you can build this in to the skills that students need and particularly students with disabilities. And so it's thinking about like how we can bring that into the schools a little bit more. We'd love to do that. And we'll love to do that work. Yeah, um, I think it's so compatible. Don't you think? Because oftentimes you're like, oh, there's just no funding for that or there's no things, but it's just like within the structures that we already have in place, we can probably find a way to inch mm -hmm. forward. And even I'm thinking if I was still in the schools when I learned about this, a lot of the students I work with might not be able to execute a full block within one workshop right. time period, but we could maybe work on that as part of their project in one-on-one -on -one OT services that they build off each step at a time. Maybe we can adapt the curriculum to be delivered at a more like slower pace. Something that I noticed when I was in the schools is a lot of students didn't even know what their disabilities were let alone like what the disability rights movement was. And I think if I was a related service and you were partnering with the school team, maybe you could get inspired by a curriculum like this and build relationships with different scholars or other disability studies folks too, and figure out how do we adapt a curriculum? And maybe when I come and visit the class, we'll do one little micro lesson, lesson on the disability rights movement and then have a breakout activity that's similar to building a quilting block, something like that. Weren't you guys doing a train the trainer type program too? Yes, we are. Cool. We're still, yeah. So we're actually like reigniting that in the next couple of months. And so that's like an online 
of course, you become like a certified SSA facilitator. And what that looks like is you can either have blocks created that come back to us. So we put them into our community quilts or they're blocks that you just keep and you can hang them up in your classrooms. You can hang them up in your community. So they won't necessarily be in a quilt, but you'll be able to continuously reflect on the art that the individuals in the community have made. So those are like the two arms, the facilitators, but that is a program that we will be restarting in the next month or so. So could you see, I was just throwing that out in the air, but maybe folks that connect to this work, do you see that being something that maybe you guys would be open to building partnerships about is maybe you'll go through some of the students in this course can, once that's launched, go and get certified, learn the approach that they've used that's been really effective in partnering with these more marginalized communities. And then thinking about it more from an occupational lens or adapting it within your school-based occupational therapist, or you know, I just showed you that Medicare guidelines allow for sewing routines. What's really stopping you from taking this into your post-acute care and utilizing the lens of quilting in your setting? We can be in partnership with organizations like SJ Social Justice Sewing Academy and bring this curriculum into spaces that it hasn't accessed before. And you're like, I think you're the executive director. <laughs> I think there would be buy-in for adapting this curriculum Absolutely. to reach different spaces that you could be in. So I, that's why you were one of the interviews that I was the most excited to include in this course, because I think it's such a present moment today with our current infrastructure around OT. We can partner to do really amazing social justice work that isn't even changing practice or controversial practice. You've seen right now, this is directly tied to the roots of what started occupational therapy existing, was resistance to the harm caused by industrialization and imperialism and colonialism. It's just right now, we have an invitation today in the 21st century to extend that impulse for meaningful repair to our community from these systemic harm today, as a lot of us are, are white Midwestern women, we have the invitation to not just let that mean white and to not just mean sane people, to not just mean able-bodied people. We have everything at our exposure to build community and healing, to creating different quilts for what American history can say. That was one of the last things that I feel like I'm dominating the discussion right now, just because I'm so excited about this topic. But one of the amazing things about quilting is it is a history that you can't deny. Some of the best documentation that we have of what's transpired and who's been involved in U.S. history is conveyed through quilts because they don't decay at the same rate that paper does. And you can't lie with them <laughs> in the same way. So there's something about creating and sewing a labor of love and investment and intention. I don't know if anybody's had that subjective experience. I put a quilt on and felt a hug of knowing that someone labored for that. It has an impact in a way that can't be denied. And we're making the invisible visible. It's such a, an amazing power. And I'm sorry, one of the last things I'll share real quick too is the reason that I got connected with quilting is I was interested in doing some processing work, which white culture doesn't have a lot of lenses that you can, you're a high vulnerability as a Caucasian person to appropriate other cultures because we've so suppressed and denied 
have mediums of community healing. So I went back to quilting because I thought I wouldn't appropriate an art form from another community because I knew that there were folks that in my lineage likely engaged with quilting as part of their settlement in this country. And I guess that's where it's what is optimistic too. If you're another white person like me that's nervous about not wanting to appropriate another culture, the thing about quilting is it's something that's really accessible to everyone and it is can become a way to build community through art that is welcoming and is what you make of it because you get to be part of that expression and Social Justice Sewing Academy is proving that to this day, that it's an inclusive art form that we can show our interest in making solutions out of nothing and showing and making space for community where it hasn't existed. Yeah, absolutely. So I would definitely encourage any of you to think about this through the lens of occupational therapy. And if it's something that you're particularly interested in, I would be more than happy to think through curriculum or changes or how reimagine how we do our workshops, especially workshops that we do in school settings, because I, I would want to be able to reach more populations than we do and from a different perspective than what we currently are. And so I'm very much open to that and thinking about make issues in general and not wanting to gatekeep at all these workshops from youth and just being mindful of that as much as possible. So I'm definitely welcoming that from any of you that want to come at it from an OT or just from an individual. There's yeah. so many different ways to get involved that I've noticed. What I would love to do is I, I've connected you to the website below this module here. So definitely go to the website. How would you, what I'm thinking too, is I'm going to create an open forum as part of our course community so that all of us that maybe are inspired by this project and want to think about what we can offer as your own thing, but particularly if you're interested in the question of curriculum and mm-hmm. your work site, why don't we get that conversation started too in our forum too? Because I want to respect the emotional labor of Lauren and we don't need to bombard her all at once necessarily. But maybe we can find each other too and see who has shared interest on this and then process and think about that. And then Social Justice Sewing Academy, it's not going anywhere. So it's going to be, and it can be available to us even as an explore in inspiration. There's so many different directions that this can go in. And I want to also to convey that hopefully we get a lot of OTs that are interested in doing social justice work too and know that. We want to be a resource to Social Justice Sewing Academy and have this not be too straining on either ends of us. Thank you so much for joining in this discussion. And is there anything else too that got missed that you would love to, that feel like you got missed or anything like that? I don't think so. I think this is really comprehensive, but I am really excited if any of you are interested to continue this conversation and potentially work with some of you on developing this moving forward. So I would love that. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day and just your investment in this project. I think it's something that just, it gives me so much excitement to know that these voices are documented and are part of the fabric of what American history can mean moving forward. And just proof that sometimes these really rigid structures and belief systems, that there's always going to be space to make changes. And if something as, I don't, if anybody's ever, been involved in some of the quilting stuff sometimes that can be really rigid and really particular and if we can create openness and change in that space there's hope and one of the themes of this class too is even if you can't if it's too close to start bringing some of these changes into your work setting 
-hmm. It's so important to create a space in some area with your life where you can start playing around with these concepts. Even if it's maybe a little bit too scary to think about doing one of these workshops in your school-based practice setting, maybe think about making a block for yourself. Maybe think about connecting just with one patient that you work with or um, if you've embroidered before something, volunteering to be somebody that's there. Just start in a way that does feel comfortable. You don't have to push yourself way in the deep end where you're re-traumatizing yourself or something. We just need to create space where this conversation can start to happen, at least. That's a, a place to play from and then trust the process over time. It might grow from there. Absolutely. Absolutely. But thank you so much for having me. This was an absolute pleasure. Awesome. I'm excited to continue supporting you guys. And I know we'll keep having those conversations, but hopefully we source broader interest too. have a wonderful rest of your Thursday. I'm just going to stop the recording now.